Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in the United States Armed Forces. On this series, jointly presented by Supply Chain Now and Vets2 Industry, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and stories from serving. We talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector, and we discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton and special guest host Dan Reeve with you here on Veteran Voices. Welcome to today's show. Dan, how you doing? I'm good. Just had some time off in the mountains. Um, my man Rob here, he's over from the UK, so uh, life is good. Life is good. I can't wait to dive into Rob's story. And by the way, I love your, um, and you got snow on these gorgeous looking like pine trees. What You got some wonderful shots behind you. Cold. It's cold. You know, it's actually, it, actually, in the mountains last night, we came down through an immersion. It was a lot, you know, 10 degrees warmer, 15 degrees warmer. That's Fahrenheit, not real money. So it was, <laughs> it was a lot warmer up there in the mountains than it, was down, than it is right now down here in Denver. Yeah. Well, I love I love the 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 shots behind you. So we'll have to see if we see some uh, some grizzly bears or some snow rabbits or something. We'll see what kind of wildlife might <laughs> might move behind you as we go through today's outstanding conversation with a uh, a wonderful fellow uh, Royal Army Royal Engineers uh, British Army Royal Engineers veteran that you served with, right, Dan? Uh, yeah, Rob and I were in the same troop. Can't say we always liked each other at first, but we came to work together, learned to appreciate one another. Rob is actually my best man at my wedding, so really? you know, we, we, the army sort of threw us together, forced us to figure it out, and we did in the end. Yeah. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna dive into that story uh, on today's right. episode of, of Veteran Voices. But hey, before we do, so listeners, stay tuned for a great conversation. But quick program note before we get started. Hey, this program is part of our Supply Chain Now family programming. Today's show is conducted in partnership with our friends at Vets. To industry. You can learn more about this powerful nonprofit that's serving so many folks, so many veterans and their families at vets, the numeral two industry.org. Okay, so with no further ado, Dan's been speaking uh, about our guest today as if he's not even in the same room with him, and he is. This will be the first time we we're interviewing a couple of of veterans that serve together on the same show. So really excited about today's conversation. Let's welcome in Rob Chell, veteran, again, of the Royal Engineers, which is a core within the British Army. Rob, how you doing? Very well, thank you. It is so neat to hear, to meet you, I guess, I guess the 2022 version of meeting, because I don't know, Rob, if you know this or not, but your, your ears have been burning because on a couple of Dan's appearances with us, Dan, I believe you've referenced Rob a couple of times, right? Didn't sound good, but you know, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's get an opportunity to get to know Rob Chell a little bit better. So, Rob, let's start with the universal question that, that, that drives so many conversations here. Where did you grow up? And give us a few anecdotes about your upbringing. Well, I grew up, I suppose, mainly in Derbyshire, which is in the middle of uh, Britain, pretty much countryside. Um, and I probably spent most of my time outside rather than inside sort of watching television or playing board games okay what what was your favorite thing to do outside what as a child or as a sort of uh, a teenager <laughs> we'll do both, Let's um, do both. i think it's just 
exploring, sort of adventure, sort of just climbing things, just, just you know, being quite physical but outside. Right. And I was aware when I was a youngster, I was aware that, although I had friends that did that with me, that a lot of children of my age, you know, back then, spent a lot of time inside the house rather than outside. And of course, I was encouraged by my father to spend as much time outside as well. <laughs> so, just to give him a break. <laughs> were you so? Um, did, I don't know about y'all, but when, when I was growing up as a kid, and Dan, I'd love to get your take too. We loved a good old-fashioned dirt bomb war, right? So I grew, I grew up in South Carolina. We had a lot of clay. And, you know, especially after a rain, you'd have all these dirt bombs, and we would have the best time hitting each other with these clumps of, of, of clay. Does that ring a bell for your upbringing, uh, Rob? Oh, we did, um, when I was in the Scouts, we did uh, bags of flour. You'd have flour wars at night. <laughs> what, with the permission of the elders? or? Um... Yeah, yeah, it was like an organized sort of ambush. Yeah. Two sides would go each other with, uh, I mean, that was kind of right. before the days of paintball and laser tag and all that stuff, that the scouts would, would, would camp well, out. Probably in Norwich way. Yeah, it was in Norfolk. Yeah, probably ba- in Norfolk thing. Bags of flour, yeah. is that what you said, Dan? Yeah, like little bags, you know, of flour, you throw them at each other and it. I love you know, it. Come away fairly white. I suppose we made water bombs out yeah, of yeah. Uh, yeah. folding bits of paper up. Okay. Because that's the nearest thing. But. Yeah. Hey, different strokes, different folks. Whatever it takes to, to help fuel your fight against your friends <laughs> as you're outside enjoying the outdoors uh, growing up. What else? Um, Dan, uh, you're going to ask Rob about what made him join the Army here in just a second. But what else sticks out? Let's talk about food for a second. Derbyshire, is that where you grew up again, Rob? Pretty much in Derbyshire, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what, 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 was a, what was a go-to food dish that your folks would make that uh, – you might miss about your childhood i suppose that's difficult to answer because my mum was quite a good cook so pretty much all the food was good <laughs> i don't really know i can't think of anything that was uh in particular that i really liked i suppose stews okay. you know stews and pies okay um chips or fries you call chips fries over here don't you yeah. french fries so that sort of thing was pretty good roast okay beef. roast beef one last thing. One last question. Did you grow up a sports fan? Did you follow any teams as a kid? No. No. Really? So it was outside exploring the outdoors uh, at your dad's behest, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't, couldn't stand the sport. You must have got into shooting quite early. Uh, well, yeah. I went shooting with my father probably less you know, less than 10 years old. I was probably shooting with him. Well, when I say shooting, I assume that it, what you mean is more – is it more – in the UK, game hunting, birds, rabbit, fox. Yeah, I guess it started off with um, sort of um, going out with him shooting. My grandmother had lived in Wales, in the um, in the valleys in Wales, and she had a small house but with some land. So we used to walk around the fields, shoot a rabbit, bring it back, you know, paunch it, really, gut it, and and then um, cook it up for dinner. Okay. So you were so mm. here in the states we call that uh, hunting, and it sounds like you were hunting at an early age or shooting, as it uh, might be how they all refer to it there. Yes, yeah, yeah. Going, going. Um, I suppose we call it rough shooting. I think we rough shooting. refer to it as rough, rough shooting. Yeah. And you, you still enjoy it to this day? Well, 
I'm not against it, but <laughs> um, I do a lot less of it than I than what I did when I was younger. Yes, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, I think when I, when I was younger, I really enjoyed doing it with my father, and then I went on in my you know teens and my twenties doing that and then I guess something changed and I don't know if it's I don't know if it's just the uh, the process of getting older but, I, but something changed inside and I started perhaps you know where you used to you used to observe the behavior of these animals right and I suppose now I sort of um, appreciate the animals in a, in a different way so I just observe them and then leave them be Hey, I'm with you, Rob. I'm with you. I, we could have a fuller conversation around that. I'm a, in particular, I'm a big bird fan. Right outside my home studio here, I've set some pole feeders up, and it is amazing how much more of appreciated blue jays and bluebirds and cardinals and goldfinches, and it, it really to kind of kind of to your point, but I'm gonna use a different word. It's mesmerizing. You know, when, when I've got uh, you know 20 birds especially when the sunlight hits these things uh, at a certain time in the morning and then in the afternoon, it is absolutely mesmerizing to see these birds uh, feed and interact and stuff. But uh, we'll have you back on the bird podcast maybe next time you come, uh, <laughs> Rob. Uh, so, <laughs> so Dan, we want to get into uh, kind of how y'all serve together and you both wore uniforms. So where do we want to start? What, what, what do, we, what do you want to ask Rob next? Well, it's funny I asked Rob this question just yesterday. We were discussing – you know, Rob, we were talking about how we uh, we both ended up in, in three troop, 575 field squadron, 73 engineer regiment. That was um, effectively for the American listeners, it's, it's, it was a National Guard regiment. They didn't call it National Guard in the UK. They called it the Territorial Army. Well, most people assume the Territorial Army didn't deploy. Hmm. Well, in 2003, and actually in the Falklands, they proved that was not the case. You know, if the Army needs battle casualties and reserves, you're going to. And, and also yeah. the, the TA, and I think it's great now, but the TA certainly back then made up one third right. of the armed forces right. on operations, didn't they? Right. But, but, but I think the public and, and, and many didn't, certainly when other deployed, even ESCO, they were a little surprised, very supportive. I've got to say that about ESCO, very supportive of my deployment. You know, I came back from deployment and ESCO said, oh, by the way, you know, you've got four weeks vacation to have. And six months, wow. seven months away. No, no, we we not we think this is really important. You've earned it. Go, go and have your vacation. Okay, thanks very much. Yeah. And when you get that sort of support from a uh, an employer, it's fantastic. But the, well, the question for you, Rob, really and Dan, was, hey, one one quick thing. I just want to level set for the handful of listeners that may have missed your earlier appearances. When you say Esker, you're talking about the the worldwide technology firm that you work work with and work for, right? Indeed, indeed. I'm talking about Eskia, where uh, the company is a global organization, a thousand employees across 13, 14 locations around the world. And I joined Eskia very young. I, was, I think I was uh, 21. And um, probably, let's think, I was deployed in 2003. So 19. I've been there four, five, six years. Okay. And they're really supportive. And it sounds like y'all. Uh, uh, I know you want to ask Rob this question, but really one, one quick follow-up. I think Esker continues to invest in its veteran uh, team members and, and recruit veterans, and which which we can't get enough of companies that really deliberately bake it into their strategy of finding veterans and giving them great job opportunities. So love to hear uh, that aspect of the Esker culture. 
there's a reason for it. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean just because somebody's a veteran, well, that person automatically gets the job. What it means is, if we think about our criteria, skills, experience, attitude, results, cognitive skills and the habits, we call it search criteria. Often what we're looking for are, are they self-starters? Can they keep going through tough times? Will they study and apply themselves? Will they ask for help? Do they have grit? And sometimes folks have said to me, Dan, you know, you what you look for is just uh, these athletes in Colorado who like to ski, climb and do the stuff with you that you do. <laughs> That's not true. You know, what, 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 what we care about is folks that can be humble, can listen, can learn, can work and apply themselves. And we, we found veterans across we have a junior positions in the company in sales, the sales development uh, staff. We have two Air Force veterans there. We have, we've had veterans in our IT group, information technology. One of the leaders within the sales team, uh, a gentleman called Chris Wadley, we give him a hard time because he was in the Air Force like yourself. <laughs> and whenever we go backcountry fly fishing, I ask, I ask him if I should you know, make his bed and put a tent up. <laughs> so we have a, and a, another one of our sales leaders is a former uh, naval chap u.s navy served on he served in the carrier battle battle group and he was okay. a, a, sw- a swimmer so we see that the the veterans often bring experience drive tenacity the ability to play nice in love the sandpit with other people love it I, I agree with you i think it's a win-win all the way around so i love that element and i'm glad we, we brought that up today so so bringing it full circle perhaps let's talk about rob uh, what made you join the army, right, Dan? That's the that's the burning question, right? Yeah, what made you join the army? How did you land in three troop, our troop? You know, um, how did I get so unlucky? What happened? How did you end up there? You know, well, we're both unlucky. Yeah. I think I think really it started off was when I was going through teenager. I, I mentioned earlier that you know I spent a lot of time outside, um, shooting, just you know, climbing, exploring in the countryside, and then. As I was just at the beginning of my 20s, I realised that a number of things. I realised that a lot of my friends didn't want to do any of that. So if I did it, I either did it by myself or just with one or two other friends. And the more I immersed myself in the countryside in my early 20s, I realised that um, I had less and less people that were interested in doing that. That was one reason. There was another reason. My grandfather and my father and various other members of the family were in the armed forces. Uh, Legacy. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's a thing for quite a lot of people that when they're, you know, parents or other members of the family are in the forces, they sort of have an interest and and, uh, want to join. And my thirst for adventure and sort of a sense of hardship because adventure is when you're doing things that's adventurous it is hard mentally and physically so I think my thirst for that was there and I think I'd started sort of perhaps the the journey of trying to discover sort of I don't know who you are or what makes you tick or you know that sort of that sort of uh, thing so they they were really the the driving the driving points really. yeah so oh, I think there was one more sure I, was, I felt that I was very shy so I felt I remember being, if I was in um, uh, a group of people, I felt that I was quite shy compared to uh, the other people in the group. And I thought, well, you know, the army is going to beat that out of me. So uh, I think that was really more or less the reasons. 
So if I heard you correctly, uh, you were in your early 20s when you joined the British Army. Is that right? Uh, I think I was, I think I was 20. It's a long time ago now, so do forgive me. But I think I was 20, <laughs> 23, 22, 23, something like that, I think. Okay. So, so you joined the British Army. And then talk to us about how you determined what you were going to do and, and what you did and where you went. Well, the first thing to do is you always interview, you know, interview whatever you're going to go into. So instead of just joining the British Army, I, I went and interviewed a load of different cat badges. And That'd be units. You okay. refer to cat badges like a, it's a shortened form of saying this unit or that unit. Because each unit, just like the US, you know, different regiments, corps, battalions, well, I don't know about battalions, but different regiments and corps will have a different beret or a different cat badge. And they'll have, you know, you'll have logistics or, yeah. or you know, a group within the army that drive lorries and distribute materials and goods and stuff. And you'll have another unit that will do something else. So so I interviewed, I think it was, in fact, I was saying to you yesterday, wasn't I? Um, I interviewed um, the Staffords that were a, at the time, were a recce platoon. So that's infantry. And they were the ones I wanted to join all along. I felt that my my skills of spending most of my life in the countryside um, would sort of, you know, suit that sort of unit really well. So I interviewed them, and then I interviewed the paramedics. So that's... Paramedics. Yeah, that would be... Airborne. Airborne, which would be a division of the parachute regiment. Okay. I don't know. Oh, right, right, just I forget, but yeah, they're airborne power. Yeah. So, so, Rob, yeah. what I'm hearing you, you, you interviewed with all the toughest units, sounds like to me, the British Army. You weren't messing around. You were, you were ready to see some action is what I'm hearing. I guess so, but I guess that you, you want to go in knowing what those units can sort of offer you and what you can offer them. So I did, there was, the other two were logistics, which, uh, well, you know, delivering and picking up materials things like that and then um and then what was this another one but it, yeah and it, i wanted the i wanted to do the recce platoon but they were changing they were just about to change to sf which is sustained fire which is operating with machine guns that sort of thing i didn't feel that that, that sounded pretty boring so i decided <laughs> to dip out on that and then oh yeah i um i went to the royal engineers which happened to be fairly local to me and they seem to interview quite well. Um, so I, I just thought, well, I'll give them a shot. So the Royal Engineers okay. is what it was. That was going to be your cat badge, if I heard, heard that right. Badge. Okay. So, and that's where you met Dan. Is that right? Very, very shortly after uh, yeah, joining, I met Dan. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we so, a, I don't know why, but we did take an instant dislike to each other. Yeah. <laughs> why? All right. So. For our listeners, I've heard a little bit of this story, Dan, but why didn't y'all like each other? I guess you were quite bossy, weren't you? <laughs> yeah, I think I was young, you know, given a little bit of rank. I was a section leader, effectively, and I'd been in the unit two or three years before, and I'd, I joined, I think I was the youngest corporal in, the, in, in, in that regiment to be promoted. I was very young, and maybe I was a bit full of myself. And I think also Rob came in, you know, we talk about Rob's experience with Land Rovers and improvising and adapting as a farm boy, effectively. I was a city slicker. And I think perhaps I thought I knew, knew it all, I knew enough. And I've been in this regiment longer than two or three years, young, longer than Rob. And Rob came in with, you know, probably some smart ideas and some 
pause is, to, is this the right way to do it? Or maybe there's another way of looking at this. And I think it was only when we got sort of forced to work together on a survival exercise that we realised, huh, maybe he's all right after all. And, and I think that I think that's true what Dan has said, that, you know, it was very irritating. But I think something <laughs> that that I had, which, which has to be, you know, uh, voiced, is that I don't think I had a very good way of, of putting over maybe an idea or, or a thought. So I think I think partly um, I don't I don't put all the blame at Dan's feet, but I think partly I was to blame as well because I think that when I had a good idea, I knew it was going to be a good idea, but I didn't I didn't voice it or approach approach it correctly, which obviously irritated um, Dan because I guess he felt you know undermined or you know um, or Perhaps even, you know, if you're given a situation and you don't really know quite what to do, you might feel a bit inadequate, especially if you are higher up the chain, you're right. sort of expected to know. And, yeah, I think that we learn to sort of communicate better with each other and also others and also not be quite so. Y'all bridge those divides because you went on to do some, some big things together. Dan, you were going to add something there. No, I think the Army taught us. One of the things they stressed in, in the leadership training was, you don't have to know, even though sometimes often in the army you were expected to, but you really, true leaders don't have to have all the right answers. What you want to do is get be able to encourage your staff to have the freedom, the agility, and feel safe to suggest options. And then you say, great, keep going with that idea. Or that's a good idea. We're going to take it and adjust it slightly. And I think that's one of the things, you know, I just finished reading a book called Multipliers. It's all about how you can get out of the way and, and, and support your staff and get 50, up to 50% more productivity. And, and, and I realized a lot of it was back to that idea, which is you don't need to have, don't steal all the oxygen in the room. Yes, I've been guilty of that in my life. Um, have a couple of coins, but use less chips. It's almost like you sit at the poker table, I've only got a couple of chips. And as a leader, I need to let everybody else sort of maybe speak and, 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 have, and contribute. And at the right time, I'll shape this. So I think... I was mistaken going into the army thinking that, yes, it's the sergeant major's style of leadership that's important. Well, actually, what I think we both discovered from some very good man managers, including a great warrant officer in, the, in, in our, who came and worked alongside us, is they listened, they understood you, and then they just sort of guided you and showed, illustrated the way to go forward. And so I think great man management it's not a case that it doesn't exist within the army or the right. military forces. Often it does, and often some folks can take it and transition that into civilian street and, and very easily. Others, right. it can be more of a challenge. Agreed. I guess it takes a while, takes a while for that to bond. It's, it's part of part of forming a team, I guess, that, you, you know, you sort of, for instance, what we were talking about earlier, that, you know, he, he was a section commander, I wasn't at the time. And... You're all you all bring to the table a wealth of knowledge, and you've got to work, or he's got to work out who has that knowledge and that understanding and ability. But also, Dan's got to work out, you know, what what the strengths and weaknesses are as well. And then, as that sort of bond is forming, certain I guess so certain boundaries are broken down, and you learn perhaps how, or for me, how to put across. Uh, a suggestion so it sounds like a suggestion rather than dictatorship i think when you as you do things in the army you go through tough things or tough times together 
maybe trust develops. You're like, okay, that guy or girl was with yeah. me. It was cold. It was wet. It was dark. That was hard. Right. That person's always there when we do these things. Maybe sometimes whether you like that person or not, a bond starts to develop because you're like, that person went through that. That person stuck it out. Agreed. That person was surprised me. I mean, wow. I mean, and I've seen that at Esco. There's been times when I remember working with somebody from a different country and I caught my own bias. We were doing a, a, actually a command exercise in, in, in Lake Louise on the ice in Canada. And I, and I remember thinking, ah, my own bias is getting in the way. And I recognize, hang on a minute, this guy's pretty good. Right. But I, my bias is I can't really understand the chap because his language differential, just like you probably can't understand me because of my accent. But I realized, hang on, I'm, I'm guilty of being biased again. Right. And what I think the army did is often it, it shoved you together with people from all different walks of life, all different social, social economic status. The full spectrum. Really. Oh, it was amazing. You know, people from not even in the, the, the mainland, people from Jamaica or, or other parts of the Commonwealth, Australians. And you had to sort of look past that. I think there was a point, there were times when you didn't even notice someone was a different color. Right. Different, a different, from yeah, a different region. Sure. They, wanted, they were wearing the same cat badge as you or they were not. That's what mm-hmm. you noticed. Oh, he's from uh, the Dragoon Guards. We don't yeah. see them very often. Or, you know, he's from he's from the Airborne. Oh, right, well, cool. We don't get to work with those guys that often. So it wasn't really, you know, you, I think you saw past those things that maybe, I don't know, people always see past them in, in civilian street. I don't know. I, I think it's a great opportunity to be immersed with the full spectrum of society because I think normally in society you stick within a certain... A certain sort of, I don't think it's a conscious thing, but a certain sort of, you know, band, you might, you know, go on the fringes of that, but you just stick within that sort of, that area. But in the, in the army, you definitely get thrown in amongst a full spectrum of, um, of individuals and experiences. And that's a wonderful thing, as you are both attesting to. So let's talk, give us an example, uh, you know, Time won't do it justice to kind of walk through probably all the things y'all did as part of the Rural Engineers, which, Dan, I think the nickname, the Sappers, Sappers, is that uh, part, is that nickname for the Rural Engineers, is that right? Yeah, it comes from the First World War, so uh, Sappers were responsible for trench warfare, and, uh, well, not just trench warfare, but I think Sapp, Pompier in French, that certainly, when you first joined the Royal Engineers, you know, you're not known as a private or a trooper. You're known as a sapper. Right. Then gotcha. you, know, you go on with a corporal, sergeant, etc. Yeah. So, so Rob, give us an example of the work uh, of a project y'all did uh, together. What, 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 what made up one of your projects, or deployments, or you name it? Well, what y'all did together? Um, we, I mean, we didn't, we didn't often do stuff together. Did we, we? we were trying on different training. sort of training exercises yeah. and things. Yeah. I mean, we, we did, um, we, down south, we put in a, uh, or refurbished a shooting bus on a range, and it was really uh, horrendous weather. It wasn't great, and it was very sort of flat, open ground next to the sea, so we were bombarded for about three days, three, four days. of, of we just rain and wind, you know, horizontal rain when it, when it hits you, it's like needles. Um, that was pretty, that was pretty... Um, <laughs> Uh, we, I literally just got off the plane, I'd been on the sales event in the Dominican Republic, got dysentery, got off the plane, sick as, sick as anything, drove down there and we just worked night mm. and day, did this job. And yeah. I think 
you know, we didn't enjoy it at the time, but we also know it's kind of amusing and funny that we still we just had to do it. I mean, we just got on with it. And we were meant to have a day R&R, but because of the weather, it was taking um, it was taking so long, so we ended up having to work our day, our day of R&R, I seem to remember. So. <laughs> we, did, we did deploy together, you asked about deployment, so uh, both Rob and I, we did a lot of outdoor adventure, Rob spoke about that earlier, we went and did a two-week trip to Manier, trip to the Pyrenees, we, we went to Nepal as a regiment, three or four weeks in Nepal, and uh, we organised our own trip to climb Mont Blanc in That's France, right. yeah. four of us from our troop, so certainly the army encouraged and fueled us to pursue that passion and, and that adventure, and that planning, and that self-reliance. And then uh, there was a point when he and I were stood on a peak in at the Annapurna Circuit in, in Nepal. We were there with our regiment, and Rob says, you know, this will come at a cost. They'll want something in return. This doesn't come for free. <laughs> and sure enough, about six months later, we were stood in the desert in uh, uh, Ali al-Salam Air Base in, uh, in, in northern Kuwait. So I told you. Mm. And sure enough, we were there. So we were deployed as part of Operation Telic, which was the British Army's contribution in 2003. This is where we separated, because Rob was sort of allocated to uh, one squadron. Although we were in uh, our, our reserve our guard squadron was together. Right. We were in the same back home. But, but we've been pulled from different Yeah, units, they don't so do that in America as much. I so it's I, a different mantra. I think, I think the, I may be wrong here, but I think the process at the time was that the British Army wanted certain expertise and they looked at their system, computer system, no doubt, and worked out who had all these expertise that they wanted. So they drew on those. So we happened to be called up together and we were with some other lads from the same troop as well as the same squadron and the same regiment. But then there was a whole host of other people from other units and cap badges and stuff all over the place, whether they were uh, TA, reserves, retired, reserves are retired, aren't they? So we were all pulled together and then we did some pre-deployment training and then we got kitted out with some kit and then and then we flew out in a civilian plane, yeah, didn't we? Because yeah. I always thought, I don't know why, but I always thought we'd fly out on a C-130 and sort of touch down and jump out the back and, you know, ready to go. But we didn't. We flew out in a civilian plane. Well, I think what was going on back then is they, first we thought the Royal Air Force had gotten to get us there. I subsequently spoke to my friend who was a staff sergeant in the Commando Logistic Brigade. He said, no, it just means you guys weren't important enough on, on the tasking order. He said, you know, so, and on top of that, I think what happened is we got there and, and this is why I think the, the, there is, it may have changed, but there was a fundamental difference. Traditionally, I believe the National Guard or the, uh, the Army Reserve in America mobilizes and deploys as a unit. Right. But the Brits, may, I think they're changing this now. The Brits have typically been, we have, you, you train in your local squadron troop, and when you go to war, we're just going to sprinkle you across these regiments. So the regiment will go to 110 or 115% of normal strength because you were basically a battle casualty reserve. And your job is to help us plug holes. Mm. And so that was, for me, that was a bit frustrating because we had always trained together for years and years and years. Yet we, and, and when we went over there, we lost some of that cohesion, that trust, that experience. I think Rob had a different experience where Rob, coming from, you know, as a, Rob obviously runs a construction business in, 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 in his normal civilian life. It all, had all that experience as improvising and adapting as a farmer. 
and suddenly they've got a pipeline to build mm. in northern in southern Iraq. Yeah. And so Rob looks at it with a different set of eyes to the regular uh, active duty soldiers and says, "There's an easier way, a more efficient way for us to accomplish this task. Let me show you how." Yeah. So you know, so so once once we'd landed in in Kuwait on on the airbase and we sort of got um, you have to sign in to the theatre of war just let them know that you're there and and then we we got separated then and then I was I was put with a, a unit so I spent I was attached for the pretty much the whole period I was attached to 40 and 42 Royal Marine Commandos and so I left I left this airbase in Kuwait wasn't it went over the border and then um, joined um, or attached to this this, uh, this unit. And then we were tasked, the first job we were tasked with was to put a water distribution point in. So the unit I'd been attached to broken down. So one one section did the, uh, the pump house, one section did water purification. My section that I was attached to did the uh, the pipeline, which was 2.2 kilometres long, and then another section did the water distribution point, which is basically taps. And that's forced for you, just to you know. So, so we <laughs> or so spigots in the south. Spigots is what we'd call that oh, in the south. There, uh, Dan. So then I was I was sent out in a rover to join my uh, my section, and um, they'd been out there. I think uh, pretty much most of the morning. Anyway, I sort of jumped out the back of the uh, the rover, uh, Land Rover, and I didn't really know, because uh, there was no one to introduce me to them, I didn't really know what I'm really supposed to do. And some of the communication issues that we had in the early years sort of, you know, came to my mind and I thought, well, you know, I'll approach it in a similar sort of manner. So I walked over there and introduced myself to them. And they'd been there for several hours trying to put this pipeline together, bush fit pipe, basically, to start with. And um, they weren't getting on very well. I think the temperature was, a, when we first got out there, was about 48, 48 Celsius. It went up to 52 Celsius, I think, in the end. Mm. And um, I was standing there talking to the uh, section commander, and I knew how they could sort of speed up this process a lot quicker. But I knew that if I was going to offer any sort of um, suggestions, I had to do it in a in a very careful manner, not to stand on anyone's feet. So thinking back to the issues that Dan and I had together, I suggested to the section commander that I might have some ideas that might speed up the, uh, the process, and um, which I, I suggested to him. And he went away, came back with all this stuff that we needed. And yeah, the, the pipeline started going in a lot quicker. And I think my experience of my whole journey uh, in the theatre of war with, with, with that unit, I think that I just hit it off with them straight away. And I was able just to suggest something that was credible, important, made life easier for everyone. Then I was just, I think I was just on a, uh, a roll there from, yeah. from then onwards. So really quick for our listeners, 52 degrees Celsius is 125.6 degrees Fahrenheit. So it was hot. And I've been to Kuwait. I had one TDY in the Air Force. It was 45 days at, at um, Al Jabbar Air Base in Kuwait, which yeah, is no so- longer around, I don't think. Uh, Dan and Rob, I think they shut that, at least 
I don't think the U.S. has a presence there anymore, if I'm not mistaken. That's still so, about 20, uh, 20 chocolate Magnum ice creams from the uh, deep back there. <laughs> we kept hey. going in there, and they didn't know who we were. There were seven, eight Brits on, on site stripping out the airfield uh, of all the British uh, hardened aircraft shelters and, and munitions. And we went yes. in there every day. And basically, we couldn't believe you, the, the Americans were giving out Magnum ice creams. So we went back. <laughs> For seconds and thirds every day. What the? <laughs> they were well, like, you, wow, you really like these, these, these ice creams. And our reply was, your army or your military is really good at morale. Right. You know, <laughs> ours is not. So we're going to keep coming back. They even had McDonald's out there. They? Had pizza we had. Hot. We, we ate. Hey, those yeah. 45 days, we ate great. Uh, we had lobsters and steak every Thursday night in the chow hall there. Uh, as I recall, but you know, one of the things you 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 reminded me, Dan and and Rob, I'm not sure if you ever spent a little time at Al Jabbar. We were able to tour the actual. We went beyond just the American installation, which is really pretty small, and we toured the the hardened bunker aircraft bunkers that yeah, the French yeah, yeah. sold to yeah. the Kuwaiti government in the 80s, and they were sold. The French sold these hardened shelters yeah. that they were they were indestructible. And yes. it was so cool to be able to go into those things. I still have some old Polaroid pictures of where bunker busters, because Saddam used those hardened shelters to hide aircraft, but our munitions, the the coalition munitions were able to bust through those things. They were big old holes. You see all the rebar hanging down because the aircraft Saddam Hussein hid in there were not hidden for long. Uh, so it was really but cool. The story goes further. The story goes further. When I was at Ali Al Salem, which is just north of there, there's this fleet of Mirage fighter jets in disrepair. And I'm thinking, this is a very expensive fleet of equipment right. that have just rotting in, or in, in disrepair. I don't understand this. And then I found the story was because the um, the French, you know, the Kuwait, the yeah, the Kuwaiti said to the French, those hardened aircraft shelters you sold us were subpar. The Americans have proved. <laughs> The F-15s and their Paveway 2 laser-guided bombs. Right. So um, we're not going to pay you all the money we owe you. And then the, apparently the rumor is, you know, the French said, well, we're not going to send you any more main, spare parts or maintain those fighter jets if, you, if you're not going to play ball and pairs for the, the hangers. I don't know. Three sides to every story, but that's what I heard. <laughs> I love that. I, I'm going to start adding that element, the, the, your story, uh, to as I talk about those hardened shelters. Uh, hey, the business of military financing and equipment and, and fleet fleet maintenance. Yeah. All right. So we're going to talk. We're going to talk about Rob's transition in just a minute. But one final question before, Dan, you ask him about that. You know, communication and communication skills is certainly one of the themes thus far as we are halfway through our conversation here today. And Rob, that strikes me as one of the key skills you developed in the Royal Army with the uh, the British Army with the Royal uh, Engineers. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. I think I think it teaches you because it teaches you to get on with a whole spectrum of people. And I think generally speaking, if you upset someone in the army, you generally know about it one way or another. Uh, it's never really very pleasant and you you have to hone your your skills you know quickly to you know to get on with it and then through your normal training training as a basic soldier or going on to being section commander you are it's explained to you how to communicate clearly and precisely and not put a lot of waffle 
in your communication, which can sometimes, you know, mislead people or they, you know, the attention span starts going and they're not listening to you. So, yeah, I'd say so. Okay. All right. Good stuff. I agree with you. All right. So, Dan, we love talking transition around here and we certainly want to learn more about Rob's transition, right? Yeah, I think the transition question is interesting, Rob, because you and I, I believe that our transition, and and like many in the National Guard in the U.S. Reserves will understand, our transition, we went through, I believe, transitions almost every weekend, every drill period, every Wednesday night, every fortnight, and, and all the extra duties we did, and we would have a period where we'd go back to the civilian world, and you were running your own business. So... How did that transition work? And I I do believe the transition when we came back from Iraq was a bit harder. Remember worrying, will I even remember how this software operates? Will I even remember how to engage with clients and customers and sell software? I was worried. You know, this was just head trash. And and over time, it did come back. Over time, I had to change my attitude. What about you? How was your transition? Coming back from Iraq? Yeah. Well, to start with, I was out in the theatre of war. It had just changed, actually. It had gone from a war state or liberation state to whatever the state is. Peacekeeping, I guess. Peacekeeping, yeah. Yeah. Which, which is often more dangerous than the, the war state because traditionally in war, you know where the enemy is. Uh, but afterwards, they're sort of, they can start sort of outflanking you. And they also off the and, uniforms. And they take off the yeah. uniforms yeah. and there's IEDs. Yeah. And well, there's IDs anyway, but it's just it, it starts getting more complicated. And uh, you know, instead of it being quite a clear picture in front of you, you really have to be, you know, on your rear guard. So I was there for the for pretty much the full six months, right to the end, and then uh, um, I think a few weeks after the end of the war phase, and then I was sent back to the UK. And so I was basically, as I see it now, I was plucked out of a theatre of war and then put on City Street within about 16 hours. I think that was it, time-wise. And we'd been working or operating sort of your normal sort of working day would be 18 to 20 hour days. And then the four hours, let's say you did 20 hours, your four hours wouldn't just be sleep. You'd do your admin, like cleaning weapons, sorting your kit out, sorting your food out getting supplies, whatever it might be, and then whatever time's left over, you go to sleep. So I've gone from that, 16 hours later, I'm in a city street, and I sort of, I, I remember thinking to myself, almost like doing a uh, self-check to see if I was, you know, physically all right, and mentally all right, or whatever. and I thought, well, I'm all right, I'm fine. And I, I think my first stop was um, to see my grandmother, because it was just on the, the natural course back to my home. And my grandmother lived opposite from my father. And um, when I got there, I had a quick chat with them, and they were about to go to the theatre. So my father asked me if I could give my grandmother a lift to the theatre. So I gave her a lift to the theatre. And she was by herself because my father hadn't turned up with his friends. So I thought I'd go in. So I was just in, I don't normally wear this, but I was just in a t shirt, tracksuit bottoms, and a pair of trainers, probably looking a bit scruffy, uh, with my grandmother in taking her to the theatre. So I went in, sat her down, and I went up to get a drink. And I felt that I was being ignored because everyone's in pretty much black tie, you know, um, uh, formal formal, yeah. formal dress, bow tie. Right. And I was at the bar 
and it was my turn to uh, take the order uh, uh, to put my order in. And barman looked over the top of me and took the order from the guy behind me. Mm. And I swung round. I'm not proud of this, but I swung round. And as I was spinning round, I realised what I was about to do. And I managed to stop. I don't know if he knew what I was about to do, but I knew <laughs> what I was about to do. And I managed to stop. And I, and I eyeballed him, but I just turned around, placed my order, got my drinks, and then gave them to my grandmother. And I realised that it was probably going to take a bit of time to sort of settle down from that high state of, of alertness, I guess. And I think it took, well, for me, I think 18, 18 months to, 20, uh, to two years to just come down from that sort of, just that state of alertness, you know. Mm. Uh, it's pretty hard. So naturally that made your transition as, as you were you know, finding employment and a job in the private sector, it made that more challenging? I think actually, I think it probably didn't because I think I used it as a, as like um, a medicine or, or sort of therapy to sort of take me away from, from what I'd been if you like, subjected to and just allowed me to focus on something else. So I think I found it quite uh, soothing and rewarding and I was probably a bit too, probably a bit too sort of addicted to it really because it sort of took you away from, you know, various thoughts and feelings and, and stuff. I think when we went out, we didn't expect to come back with any baggage, so to speak. And I don't, personally, I feel I was very lucky, didn't get a scratch. Glad I went and did the tour. But I don't, in the way going out there, I don't think anybody ever said, and by the way, when you come back, I believe American units good at this, we're going to decompress for a month or two weeks. Yeah. You won't immediately go back to your families. I, I, I think, I think, sorry about drinking in there, Dan. I think that, I don't know why we were just sent straight back. But I think very soon after that, that they did send guys over to places like, was it Azores, Ascension Isles, Cyprus, to, for, I don't know, a couple of weeks or so to to sort of depressurise. And although if I'd been given that opportunity to do that, I know that I wouldn't have wanted to do it. I mean, in the army, you don't often get given an opportunity, you're told what to do. But it was pretty pretty harsh just to uh, just come straight back just plop straight out of that environment and just pop into completely other you know different environment which is funny because you, you've always heard stories about uh, during the second world war and the first world war people would um be thrown back into the working uh, environment in the uk and, and society knew it didn't work or he would never speak about his time in the service until he, just before he passed away or i think we knew the british army knew better in, in some ways and, but or, or for some reason it wasn't there, it wasn't planned. And now I think with the, with the recognition of PTSD, etc., I think the British Army and the US Army, uh, the National Guard, are a lot better at looking out for it, recognising it. I, I remember we went over a remembrance parade and we got back and a friend said, I asked him how he was doing, he said, I'm struggling a bit, to be honest. Mm. And, uh, and I said, why? And I don't think I, re- I should have investigated more. But we were talking about, again, he got separated in a different unit, and, and he said something like, on the first night I was going across the border, the Fedayeen, which was the local uh, militia in southern Basra, were, were attacking our position, throwing kids 10, 11, 12 at us, mm. carrying AKs. Mm. And he said, I had, to, I had to, you know, shoot a child carrying an AK. Mm. And... Um, it's only, it was only years later when I was living here in the US that I realized I failed him. 
I'd failed him to say, well, well, have you spoken to anybody? What are your thoughts? How are you doing with this? You know, I, I think that was a cry for help and I missed it. And I feel guilty mm-hmm. about it. I should, have, I should have said, well, should we do something about this? Mm-hmm. Do you want to have a chat? Should we get together for a coffee? And I didn't, you know. And I, 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 I think that... You know, you trained us to look at that. I, I don't, yeah, I don't think you should feel guilty about that because you're all going through your own journey. And I suspect that all, our, all of our journeys, even if you were fighting alongside each other, during that fight and after that fight, when you're thinking about it, I should think that your journey through that process is different from each other. You know, right. your thoughts, how you saw it from you, your side, yeah, yeah. you might be two metres away from me, yeah. but yeah. how you physically saw yeah, yeah. or think yeah. you saw the, yeah. the whole... Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, the perceptions and, and those perceptions change over time. And, right. Yeah. It was probably, to be fair, I think, it, it was y'all's first time, uh, Dan, as a manager, even needing to be mindful of, of those. I mean, it, it was a, it was your first time you know, coming back from a war and and having to even worry about the maybe the mental state of your troops. So, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. War and deployment, and, and I've, I've never served in combat. I'm not like, like, like y'all. I didn't deploy to Iraq or anything. So I can only put myself in those shoes, but I can – it is such a complex thing on so many different levels, and uh, I appreciate y'all sharing because I think these conversations, I believe, are what are, is going to help the veteran community, you know, tackle unfortunately whatever the next conflict uh, looks like. You know, the mental state. Especially uh, for the, I go ahead. Say, sorry, uh, yeah, no, good. The U.S. military. I remember 2010. I was over here. And I was thinking. I was watching. I was watching units get deployed and individuals doing five tours. And the, I think when we were there, the fourth was it third infantry division, the fourth infantry division got ex, expended right. to eighteen months in thing. Yeah. And on top of that, they've done three or four months pre-deployment. You know, you're talking two years away from your family. Right. Kid, I mean, we, when we came back, children. I remember seeing, or well, certainly even when we were there, one of the roughest, toughest soldiers crying on a telephone, mm. just destroyed. And I'm thinking, hey, that guy's a real warrior. Mm. He's a Viking. And he was a friend of mine. I said, what's up, mate? He said, well, kids won't talk to me because mm. they feel I abandoned them by coming out here. Mm. You know, and, and, and it was hard to see that. You know, and I think maybe you know, when you join up, nobody says, this, this is some of the side, side, the side effects that are going to happen. This well, is what you're going to deal with. I mean, I think, I think the, yeah. it's, it, I'm sure it's the same for the American Army, but for the British Army, I think they, they do a very good job in training you as a professional soldier. But... I think they do a really, a really bad job at, um, at sort of training you or, or helping you to understand what, what it might be like. You know, sort of, it's all right. You know, you know what, the, you know, you know what the warfare part of it's like. But there's a whole host of other things that take place. You know, like phoning, phone, if you get the chance of phoning right. home and speaking to your kids. I don't have children, but if you did, you know, they don't, they don't tell you or suggest what, how you might approach that or keep in touch with them. Right. So, yeah, they, they do a great job of training to be a professional soldier, but right. a lousy job at yes. that. There's certainly opportunities to improve. So let's let's skip ahead for the sake of time. There's so much we could we – could, I really appreciate you all sharing and being really transparent about your experiences. Again, I, I think the more we talk, and I think – what use the example of the, the gentleman that was on the phone is bawling, Dan – 
You know, the tough guys and getting them to talk about their experiences can be challenging to do. But the more we can talk about this as veterans, I think the more non-veterans and veteran advocates in our respective governments and branches of the military, and the more more understanding and, and hopefully the, the stronger the programming that supports you know, our, our military and our, our men and women in, in uniform can be. So, so, Rob, curious, what do you do now? Can you shed a little light on what you do now without not too many specifics, but what are you up to now? So I run a, a jewelry business, which does a bit of a building as well, or construction, basically, uh, specializing in uh, historical properties, main, maintaining them, alterations, repairs, sort of thing, where pretty much everything has to be bespoke for that period of time. And that is pretty much what I do, which a lot of the skills that I use within that, either running the business or actually hands-on uh, understanding and and creating things. A lot of a lot of that skill comes from being in the army, being able to sort of uh, identify where the you know the problems are and, and how to um, how to uh, uh, correct them. Some the context. What are the age of the houses? Mm. Good a few hundred years old, maybe two, three, four hundred year old properties. Wow. Yeah. I, so there was there was a property. This isn't really to do with your question, but there's a property that I do a fair bit of work on, and which is about it's about 300 years old. And I was up on some scaffolding, removing a piece of stone from the wall because it deteriorated. And I just had a moment as I had it out of my hands, holding this bit of stone, and I was just thinking, the last time a human touched this bit of stone was about 300 years ago. Wow. And here I am, sort of 300 years later, taking this piece of stone out. Man, so, uh, that is awesome. And so, very rewarding. Yeah, I bet it is. So let me ask you a quick follow-up. How did you, that seems to be a very niche part of the construction industry. How did you stumble into the historical property aspect of construction? I found it quite difficult because there's no one, there was, there's very few people that specialize in it. They, they may say they do, but they probably don't. And it took a long time to sort of get into that area. I had gone through the normal courses of education in terms of building techniques and construction and drawing and stuff, uh, which as far as I was concerned, that gave me the the, um, the foundation work to, to build on for that. But the rest of it was just trying to get hold of information books, um, detailed books on historical properties and how um, the techniques were used back in the day. And then over a long time, you sort of you meet someone and then they put you in touch with someone else. Right. And then it sort of it starts growing quite quickly once you sort of, you know, you get into that sort of environment. But that that environment is still you know, it's very, very small. You know, even in the whole of Britain, there's, there's not a huge amount of people that specialise in historical properties. So you'll be working on one, you know, one job and you'll be talking to someone else on that job that might be a plasterer. And they'd been a few weeks working up in Scotland, maybe a few weeks beforehand. And they would be working with someone that you knew, almost a little bit like the army. And it's, quite, <laughs> it's quite, a small, quite a small hub, really. Of, well, you got plenty of business. Uh, Rob, since there's not many folks in there, you got plenty of business. Is that right? That's true. Yes, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Well, I can only imagine having that uh, again. Back to your initial story there about 
you know, working on that that home that dated back to sounds like the early 18th century, and holding these stones that hadn't been held by human hands in 300 years. I mean, gosh, the epiphanies you're having day in and day out as you work on these old properties. That's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, very and and very rewarding. You know, just sort of holding that piece of stone. I know it's just a piece of stone, but just knowing that a guy put it in, mm. you know, 250, 300 years ago, and here you are just removing it, you know, right. and the building's still there. You know, the building's still being used as a home or, or you know, an office. Love it. I mean, these properties, these aren't going to be here in three years, three right. years' time. These will probably be knocked down in maybe 40 years' time, and then something else will be built. Right. It is fascinating. All right. So speaking, I got to, I got to throw this in because you're, what you just shared there reminds me of a really thought provoking movie. Uh, and I think the name of it is just ghost. It is, I'm going to have to put the, uh, no, no, not that ghost that, that not that ghost. This movie was released just a couple of years ago and it follows, uh, this guy that passes and then he's, he's kind of a ghost until he gets his final disposition. And to your point, Rob, he kind of lives in this one property and, and the movie kind of follows the arc of what happens to that property. You don't even think about how, you know, in 40 or 50 years, to your point, how a lot of, a lot of these properties are going to change. And then certainly over the course, you know, of two or 300 years. Uh, and, and there's a moment in that movie where it, it really illustrates the point you just made. So I'm going to have to, um, I'm going to have to track down that movie title and, and the big actor, that was in it. Ghost, I want to say, but anyway, ghost stories or ghost tales or something, but I'll think of it. I'll put it in, in the show notes. Okay. So on that note, let's make sure folks know. So, so Rob, you kind of operate under the radar a little bit. Um, we, we usually invite our listeners to connect, but uh, hey, different strokes, different folks. But for folks that may want to learn more from Rob, Dan, uh, we're going to promote you to agent Agent for one, Rob Chell. So how can folks connect with you, Dan, whether it's about Esker, whether it's about your experiences in the British Army, or if it's about, hey, give me some more information on Rob Chell. How can folks connect with you, Dan? That's right. I mean, if, if, if you have a, a very old property that needs some work, you know, it won't be cheap. Maybe I should take a cut of this as, as the middleman. <laughs> but you can reach me at uh, daniel.reevedesco.com. Uh, find me on uh, LinkedIn at Esker. Wonderful. It's just that easy way. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I love that y'all spoke about your time together in uniform. I really appreciate that. Uh, Rob, we look forward to having you back soon. I want to get some snapshots of your, some of your, your construction sites, uh, Rob, that's gotta be pretty cool. That said, I want to, I want want to get some video tours of your, these construction sites, these homes that were built back in the uh, 1700s and whatnot. That's gonna be really cool. I'll look out an old video camera of mine and take some uh, videos for you. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for your sorry, time, Rod Chow. Sorry to rush. <laughs> so I, owe you, I owe you a video. <laughs> hey, Dan, thanks so much for your time. We've been chatting with Dan Reeve with Esker, uh, also a veteran of the Royal Army. Hey, folks, hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Uh, folks, make sure you can check out vets2industry.org, our big nonprofit partners over there. They're doing great work for the veterans community. Uh, on behalf of our entire team here at Veteran Voices, Scott Luton wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. Hey, challenge you to do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right back here on Veteran Voices. Thanks, everybody.